We're going to go back in time. December 1941, German occupation in Europe neared its height. Reinhard Heydrich was the ruthless and powerful Nazi SS commander appointed by Adolf Hitler to be the protector of occupied Czechoslovakia. He became known as the Butcher of Prague. His brutality and concern among allies that he would succeed Hitler if the opportunity ever arose led to an assassination mission in 1942 dubbed Operation Anthropoid. On May 27, 1942, two Czech resistance fighters, or the Czech underground, carried out a successful assassination, killing Heydrich. Well, the Nazis wouldn't let that go, and in response, SS forces rounded up thousands of Czech citizens. Not only that, but Adolf Hitler ordered the destruction of a village, Lidus, 16 miles outside of Prague. All the males over 16 years old were shot on the spot. Children and women were sent off to concentration camps. The Nazis came into that village and they set it on fire and the remaining of the buildings were destroyed by explosives. All the animals, all the pets in the village, all the herds were slaughtered as well. All visible remains of the village were covered with soil and crops were planted over one used to be Lydus. Ultimately, a total of 5,000 Czechs were killed in the aftermath of the Hadric Terror. This morning, we're going to be talking about King Herod. He was a terror in Israel. He was known for killing people ruthlessly, brutal, etc. But before we do, Christmas Carol, like most Christmas stories, require a villain somebody whose chief goal is to make Christmas miserable or non-existent for everybody. Dickens gives us Scrooge. He came around, though, right? He came around eventually. It's a wonderful life has Mr. Potter, right? Mr. Potter, remember him? And the Grinch who stole Christmas. The Grinch. Yeah, man, the Grinch, good man. But the original Christmas story has its own monster, and Herod is a legit villain, man. He was out to destroy that first Christmas. And I don't know if you've noticed, you never see Herod in any nativity scenes, do you? Huh? No, he doesn't show up. He's left out on purpose because he's got a bad reputation. In 63 BC, Pompey, the Roman general, stormed Jerusalem and claimed the entire region for Rome. And they, Rome became firm in their control. And now Herod, ruling over that area, uh, presents a dark shadow over Israel. And so uh, <laughs> Herod definitely plays part of that Christmas story. And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about him, zeroing on him and Maybe this Christmas, you know, the kids said Merry Christmas, and uh, I appreciate what Nick, how he prayed. Um, 
because Merry Christmas may sound foreign to you this morning. I mean, we understand the last year, the last two years have been challenging for a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of uh, suffering, a lot of torment, a lot of anxiety has, has crept into the atmosphere where we live. And this morning, you may be feeling that in your own personal life. Maybe you could identify with, like Joseph, knocking on the door of the innkeeper and being told there's no room in the inn. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. <laughs> I've got a story to tell, and I won't tell it. But um, when our kids were little, we literally started up in Door County and finally ended up in Milwaukee before we could find a, a hotel room. So it's a bad day, right? It's a bad day. And anyway, uh, Jesus, here's the cool thing. He was willing to be born anywhere. Think about that. He came as a baby. He was willing to be born in a barnyard, basically. And if Jesus is willing to do that, there is nothing that will keep him away from you. I mean, he's willing to go anywhere on a search mission to rescue you so that you could experience an incredible relationship with your heavenly father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And so we look at this morning, that first Christmas, that, uh, well, it was, it was challenging. Mary became pregnant under unique circumstances. Joseph and Mary made that dangerous trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 90 miles in the later stages of her pregnancy. I mean, ladies, think about it. A donkey. Are you kidding me? Right? Uh, not a comfortable SUV, you know, with shock absorbers and good struts. Well, donkeys don't come like that. So, you know, she got bounced around quite a bit. It's a five-day trip, man, back in the day. A lady who's on the brink of delivering a baby, willing to ride that donkey. Jesus born in a manger, probably a cave. Mary and Joseph were alone in the world. They left their family behind in Nazareth, go to Bethlehem because of that census. The wise men come to Jerusalem. They ask about the baby, King Jesus, being born. And that really got Herod's attention. What gets your attention? What has got your attention right now in life? What's consuming your thoughts when you try to go to sleep at night? What's the first thing you wake up thinking about? I want to tell you that God has some good news for us this morning. In fact, we know that Herod was so disturbed that he ordered a death sentence on all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Kind of like Reinhard Heydrich after he was killed. The order coming down from Adolf Hitler to destroy an entire village. It doesn't seem human, does it? How another human being could destroy the lives of others. Well, that was King Herod. So number one in your notes... Jesus is born and Herod is ticked. What ticks you off? Um, uh, I've told, uh, little things get me. 
over coffee. We'll talk about those little things. <laughs> you know, pushing the envelope, and he kind of messed with you. Anyway, what ticked off Herod? It was the birth of Jesus. Let's take a look at Matthew 2. Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? You see, that got Herod's attention, newborn king. Herod thought, I'm the king. What are you talking about, a newborn king? And so we saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. And King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And you know exactly where each one of us have come from this past week, the month, the year. You know exactly what we're going through. And so this morning, as we look at the story of Christmas and how relevant it is even in 2021, help us, Lord, to be encouraged from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just like Ebenezer Scrooge and the Grinch who stole Christmas, Herod would prefer that Christmas would just go away, you know? Just disappear. Stop being a threat. Herod thought, the king of the Jews, hey, king, that's my title. That's what it's all about. But even though people really forgot about God, Christ still came to earth. Yeah, and in spite of all the pandemonium, the, the census, man, it, it turned Israel upside down. All the traveling. You may be traveling for Christmas, and you know, you know, getting into the airport, and to getting on the plane, or getting in the car and driving. Those are all challenges along the way. Well, that's what was going on in Israel for the census. Why would Jesus be born in a time of a census? Why didn't God make it easy? Why couldn't they just stay in Nazareth? You know? Make it easy for Mary and Joseph. But no, they have to go 90 miles on the rough roads. No place to have a baby. Doesn't seem fair. Can I tell you a little secret? Life is not fair. We see it here in the text as well. Life is not fair. And I want to encourage you, if you have gone off the rails and considered yourself a victim, uh, that's not what life is all about. Honestly, you don't see Mary and Joseph or Jesus looking at themselves as a victim. Life is not fair. Jesus told us that in this world, you will have trouble. You know, he shot the flare in the air because we live in a broken world. So really, trouble should not be a surprise to us. We know trouble's not a surprise to Jesus. I mean, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But we see that here it is ticked. And you know, why? Why is this in the Bible? Because this is messy, that a king would want to kill some baby boys. It's messy. You know, when you look at those Christmas cards and everything looks so peaceful, 
you know, and beautiful and quiet. You've got a terrorist basically in Jerusalem wanting to hunt down all these baby boys to kill them. It's, me- it's a mess. Our world is exhibiting some of that right now. And the reason simply is, is because God is being pushed out of our cultures. And so because Herod loved his power, he wanted to keep his power, that's where the threat came from. And so Herod the Great, known for killing people like his own brother-in-law, like his mother-in-law, like his wife. We could go on and on. In fact, um, Josephus, uh, the historian from back in that day, called him a barbaric Somebody else called him the malevolent maniac. How would you like to be living under those conditions, you know, where you never knew if you were going to survive today or tomorrow? What would happen with your family in the next week? That was the kind of stress these people were living under. Killing was something that King Herod did very well. Number two, asking why at Christmas, verse 16 Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, and he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, and that was 600 years earlier. It was prophesied that this would happen. A cry was heard from Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Rachel was the symbolic mother of Israel. She was the wife of Jacob. And so when Jeremiah is prophesying this, he's calling out to Rachel, As she would cry, as she would weep, so the mothers of these babies that were killed would weep. When you look at the players in Christmas, most of them are modeling their faith in a very, very good way. Mary, for one, she had great courage. Joseph was obedient. The shepherds, well, they came and they worshipped Christ. The wise men traveled a long way, and they gave generously to Jesus. Most of the characters in Bethlehem behaved like heroes, but then there was one who played the villain. And Herod was furious, verse 16. He was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, and so he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old. Or younger. Why didn't Herod make the trip himself? I don't know. But he sent the military to go do this job. Bethlehem, simply six miles south, you could see it on the map, six miles south of Jerusalem. It would take a couple hours walking, you know, a slow walk. And Herod didn't consider himself worthy to go to Bethlehem. And so 
maybe we could ask this question. If God warned Joseph and Mary about Herod's intention, why didn't he warn these other parents? That's a good question, isn't it? Asking why at Christmas. Again, life is not fair. Why isn't it? Why didn't Jesus or God warn the other parents that Herod was about to kill their baby boys? That's a good question, and I don't have an answer for it. And that's the thing where we have to settle it, friends, that there's a lot of questions that happen in life, and we will not have answers until we get to heaven. And we have to be, we have to have that faith, that core, that foundation in our lives to be able to trust God in the good and the bad. Why? Because life is not fair. But we see that God preserved his son that day because he knew that he would grow up to be a man and that ultimately he would die on a cross. He would die on a cross for your sin and my sin. And so we could simply say, Jesus escaped the first time, he would not escape the second time, so that we would escape for all time. When we put our faith and trust in him, we escape eternal separation from Almighty God. And so this truth really would be a small comfort to the grieving mothers and fathers in Bethlehem after their sons were killed. Now, there's an article written um, called, Why Does Life Have to Be So Hard? I think many of us can identify with it. Michelle Lindsay says, I'm catching on to the fact that life is hard. In fact, life is difficult at times. And with that, I start to question God's wisdom in all this. I mean, come on, here we are running around on this earth trying our best not to get devastated by something awful. You may say you don't fear, and I say, if that is you, you may be in denial. People are afraid. And they want to know what they're supposed to do with all the stress and turmoil. They want to know how they can possibly find any hope as they look around at the loneliness and despair. They distract themselves from the thought that at any moment, the rug could be ripped out from under them. At any moment, their world can turn upside down and their lives can shatter into a million pieces at a blink of an eye. I struggle. I have friends who are struggling. Huge, devastating things are looming. And there seems to be no end in sight. It makes me angry. Don't tell me to think positive or give me answers that are only meant to smooth over my fears. False hope, because none of it makes sense. Why does life have to be so hard? Why? And then I cry bitter tears because I hear no answer and nothing changes for the better. And all I hear is silence. And I save the sobs caught in my throat. The other day, my adult son told me he felt afraid. The air was instantly sucked out of me. I felt so sad I wanted to minimize his feelings because the thought of my child... The child I brought into this world, facing their future with trepidation, made me want to weep. This is the child who, for the most part, has had more happy days than sad and whose smile lights up a room. And now he is fearful and without any peace. I asked myself, what did I do bringing my son into this dark place? 
I think Mary and Joseph probably wondered about that at times as well. Then I thought of God, my God, the one who is a father and who loves purer and deeper and truer than me. In fact, he is the definition of love. And I wondered how he would be able to bring his son to this wretched place. And then I told myself the things I know. I don't worship some faraway God who is far removed from my pain. I don't worship a concept, an ideology, or a human leader. I try not to worship anything more than him. And that includes my children, my marriage, or myself. I worship a God who is near. He didn't just drop me on this planet to suffer and struggle and walk away. He didn't put me here to be good or amazing or well-behaved. He planned me. And he had my rescue in mind before I was even born, before I ever messed up. I made a disaster of my life. Jesus made a way. I am his daughter, and he cares about my pain. He listens. I don't know why things have to feel so random and cruel, but he knows cruel. He knows tragedy. He hears me, and he intercedes for me. There's really nothing I experience that he can't understand. If he hadn't suffered so greatly, I would be too angry to even cope. I might just freak out and give up. But I have never walked the painful road he walked, and I never will. So we can keep going towards the joy set before us. Yes, there is still silence and unanswered prayers, and many things make no sense to me, but I can't help but rest knowing he is right here with us. He didn't stay far away. He gave us himself so we could touch him, be held by him, and we will one day rejoice with him on the other side of this dark world. Well said. Well said. I think if we had a show of hands, many of us would raise our hands and say, man, I can identify with that. That's what I'm going through right now. God knows because he's here. So we know God has a plan, number three. And that plan was fulfilled through four dreams in this text. The first one, wise men warned in verse 12, when it came time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So the first dream warns the wise men to go a different way home. That's what men like to do. Take another way. They're warned. Number two, Joel flees. Verse 13, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And you can see it on the map. It's a 75-mile trip. Joseph and Mary are warned to go to Egypt. And why is that? Because evil visited Bethlehem that night. Number three, Joe returns, verse 19 and 20, when Herod died. Friends, all of us in this room, not to sound morbid, but the clock is ticking. This world is not our home. I think part of one of the reasons why people are living in so much fear is because they have no hope for the, for the eternal, for the future. They feel like this is it. 
This is not it. Your soul will live forever, either in the presence of God or away from God. It's heaven or hell. There's no middle ground. That's why Jesus came, to keep hell out of you and give you that free gift of salvation. And so, when Herod died, he was king. He probably thought he was going to live forever, but he too died. No special privilege being a king. No special privilege for each one of us. But we know when we put our faith in Christ, we will go to be with the Lord forever. It's good news. It's good news. And so the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. And so the third dream was another time to go back. And finally, number four, verse 22, Joe is alerted. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, not another good example for a leader, he kind of followed his father's footsteps. He was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. And so the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. And so, once again, we're reminded that Christmas is messy. Imagine, uh, you know, packing it up, moving, packing up, and moving, and Joseph and Mary thinking, I'd like to settle down for a while, you know? I'd like to have a permanent address. And here I'm carrying Jesus, you know, I carried him in my womb for nine months, and now he's a baby. It would be just fun to let him go out in the backyard, you know, with the fence and... It's not fair. Why, why are we on the run? Mary and Joseph are thinking, why are we, why are we on? Why, is, why are our lives at risk? Once again, man, when you put your faith in Christ, <laughs> you're not going to live in a holy bubble, you know? You're not going to live in a commune of safety, man. This is the real world we're living in. And it was... It was demonstrated to us on that first Christmas. Mary and Joseph are on the run, and they're trusting God through the whole process. And we see that Joe was alerted. Now, it's going to be worth it. Why? Because God has a plan. Check this out. In Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so Jesus came the first time as a baby, He's coming back, and all the angels with him, and he will sit upon his glorious throne. See, it's going to be worth it, man. Whatever you're going through right now, it will be worth it through all eternity. This is temporary. What you and I are going through is temporary. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.1, in the last days there will be very difficult times. Peter told us in 2 Peter 3.3, most importantly I want to remind you that in the last days scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. Hebrews 1.2 says, and now in these final days he has spoken to us through his son. 
Friends, Jesus is speaking. He is speaking. And the question is, are we listening? Do we know the days that we're living in? Well, we're being told, Hebrews 9.28, He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for Him. Are you waiting for Him? Huh? It says we should be eagerly waiting for Him. We're looking forward to that day. Jesus came, Christ will come. But He won't come as He came. He came quietly into Bethlehem. He will return with a shout this time. Yes, he will. Matthew 25, 32, all the nations will be gathered in his presence. And if you need any more reminding, 1 John 2, 18, dear children, the last hour is here. So when we look at the timeline, when we look at the clock for planet Earth, It's nearing midnight, friend. When you stop and think about world history, we are living at the tail end of it. And what a privilege that is to be living for the Lord. Rick Warren tells a story about the time he took his wife shopping. And of course, as men, we always sit in the car, don't we? As we let our wives wander, meander through the stores, right? Well, his daughter was three years old at the time, and she was in the back seat, in her car seat. Rick was hoping this would be a quick turnaround, <laughs> so he didn't get her, his daughter out of, the, out of the car seat. And his little girl was, you know, making a little noise back there, and finally she couldn't take it anymore, and she put her head out towards the window and yelled, Please, God, get me out of this! <laughs> And we can identify with Rick's daughter, can't we? Like, there are many times when we feel, God, get me out of this mess. You right? Yeah. We do anything to get out of it. Ethan Hawke, he's an actor in Hollywood, 51 right now, but he started out as a young actor, and one of his contemporaries was River Phoenix, Hawk looked up to him, but tragically, Phoenix died of a drug overdose back in 1993. Later on, Hawk was interviewed, and he talked about his friend. Drugs and alcohol and depression are formable opponents all over the world. People think getting what you want will make you happy. But a sense of self, purpose, and love don't come from the outside. You can't get distracted by this culture that celebrates things that sometimes aren't what they seem. And friends, when we look at our culture today, people are coping in a variety of different ways. And Hawk is saying drugs and alcohol, man, they, they, it, they just can't cut it. I've got a friend who doesn't go to church, and we had a conversation a couple weeks ago. And he said, at night, I smoke pot just to bring me down, settle me down, you know, before I go to bed. You see, people are coping in different ways. How are you coping with life right now? Is it artificial? You know, Mary and Joseph, they were living under a lot of stress in their day. 
but they trusted God. And they trusted him alone. It's so easy to lean into temporary fixes, but it's not going to make a permanent difference in your life. And so, Jesus tells us in John 10.10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And you could say he's doing a pretty good job. But Jesus overrides that. He says, my purpose is to give Give them a rich and, rich and satisfying life, a life with purpose, a life with meaning. And so I was reading in Hebrews just uh, about two weeks ago, came across Hebrews 11.35, and I thought how relevant it is. Talking about the hall of faith, those that kept their faith in very turbulent times. And it says here, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. Refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. So if you renounced your faith in Christ, they would be free from torture and confinement. But here's the answer. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. You see, that's the deal. We need to be keeping our focus on heaven because that's the real world. This is temporary. This is all going to go away one day. And so by keeping our eyes on Christ and keeping our thoughts about heaven, our eternal home, man, that's what keeps us rolling. So, yeah. And number four, the Christmas battle continues. How about it? <laughs> 2,000 years ago, there was a battle raging with Herod, and the battle continues. You know, a very simple battle. I went to the post office a couple weeks ago. I wanted to buy some Christmas stamps. Do you know that they do not have nativity Christmas stamps? Friends. And, and I told the lady, I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I always buy Christmas stamps. I didn't have a meltdown there, but I, I was just thinking, you know. It's indicative of where our culture is going. Our culture wants Christmas, Christ, to go away. Right? Just go away. And that's why you and I have been left on this planet to be Christ bearers. We demonstrate that relationship in a very practical way. So the Christmas battle continues to understand what's going on in Matthew 2 with Herod, etc. We have to leave the troubled streets of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and go back. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. I, I was talking to somebody recently. I said, I'm kind of getting in the mood to watch Lord of the Rings again. Because it's a battle, right, of good and evil. And it looks like evil's winning, but at the end of the day, the good wins. 
And that's the way it is. At the end of history, the good's going to win. And um, all you got to do, man, is read Revelation 20. I just finished that book. And we know that Satan and his team get thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. Forever and ever. How long is that? It's forever and ever. Right? Yeah. So we know what's going to happen. And we look forward to it. But we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That's where it all began, this battle of good and evil, when Satan in the serpent, form of a serpent, tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. And that's where sin, Pandora's box of sin, was opened, and it will never be closed until the end of time when Jesus shuts the door on it once and for all. All the pain, all the suffering. Oxford High School in Michigan, my, my sister, her, her daughter teaches there, and her four grandchildren attend that school. They knew all the victims that were shot. See? The grieving, the, the pain, the suffering that's going on in that community. Where does that come from? That comes from all the way back in the garden where hatred and evil. And Herod modeled that so well. And it's so easy, in fact, that when we look at Herod, or as we look at the Adolf Hitler, etc., we say, man, I'm so much better than them. Listen, we all have a little bit of Adolf Hitler in us, friend. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But when Adam sinned, Romans 5.12, sin entered the world, Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, indeed. So this battle will rage. It will continue to rage. Paul says, put on that full armor of God and stand firm. Let's stand together. Which reminds me, I love being in here. I love being with you. Really. I don't have my fingers crossed. <laughs> there is something about coming together, man. You know? Montanio. I went up to him and beat him on the chest this morning, man. I said, hey, man, I missed you last week. You know? You got to beat on somebody. <laughs> That's what you call a love tap. Right? That's a love tap. There you go. Number five, why Jesus came. Here it is. Jesus came. Why did he come into this broken world where he couldn't find a place to, to sleep, you know, a place to stay? He couldn't find serenity. He couldn't find peace. He was on the run. Why did he come? Matthew one twenty one. And she, Mary, will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So there's two wrong approaches when we look at Christmas. The first one is we can't look at our world with rose-colored glasses to say there's no evil in the world. We have to be honest. There is evil. And the second thing we can't do is where we allow so much despair to cripple us when we see violence and pain, you know? There's a, there's a healthy balance there to know that we're living in a broken world. Hurting people hurt people. When God is not a part of a person's life, they can do some pretty 
evil things. We're seeing that evidence today. But Jesus came to rescue you and me from this broken world. And we see that the Savior, Luke 2.11, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus came to be our Savior. That's why he came. He loved you and I so much that he came into this broken world. He could have stayed in the safety of heaven, but he came into this broken world and put his life at risk, ultimately putting his life on the cross to pay for your sin and my sin. And Romans 3, and 23 say, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. And we fall, all fall short of God's glorious standard, all of us. No exceptions, all of us. And so this morning, I just want to encourage all of us, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this Christmas is a great time to say yes to him. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, author, back in the 1800s, married Mary Potter. After being married for three years, Mary passed away. And Henry took up a life of solitary existence. About seven years later, he was introduced to Francis Appleton, and they grew in love, and they married and had children. In 1861, not only was our country divided by a civil war, but again, personal tragedy came knocking at Henry's door. Toward the end of 1861, his wife's dress caught fire when she was using a candle to melt wax in her room. Her dress caught on fire. Longfellow tried to suffocate those flames with a small rug, and then that wasn't working, so he grabbed his wife in his arms to try and put that fire out, but he himself was burned pretty bad. His wife passed away the following morning, and Henry was so severely burned himself, he was unable to go to her funeral, but he was grief-stricken, as you can imagine. The first Christmas after her death, he wrote in his journal, how inexpressibly sad are all the holidays. Nearly a year after Francis' passing, he penned, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. And then, December 1st, 1863, he got a telegram stating that his oldest son, Charles, was severely wounded and crippled in battle out of his own sadness. He wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It starts with these hopeful words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace and earth, goodwill to men. But you can see how life was beating up Longfellow. And he wrote another verse to that poem. And in despair... I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong. 
and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Hmm? Maybe you can identify with that verse. Where's our hope at Christmas time? The same battle of good and evil are continuing to fight in your life. What are you going to do? Well, Longfellow went into that dark period in his life and he came out of it and he wrote this final verse. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow experienced pain, loss, suffering. And you can see the process. But he finally settled it where he placed his hope in God. And friend, I want to encourage you this morning, whatever you're going through this Christmas season, the most important decision you can ever make if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you say yes to him this morning. Jesus, you died for my sin. You paid it in full. You took my place. Forgive me. And I thank you for forgiving me of my sins. And today I place all my trust in you. Jesus, be my spiritual leader. And may this be a beginning of a tremendous relationship with my loving Heavenly Father who allowed his Son to come to a broken world to die for my sin. And three days later, come crashing out of that tomb to prove that death could not hold him. And that's not going to hold you once you put your faith in Christ. So, Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you, Lord. For the great love that you demonstrated that first Christmas and how you lived faithfully, fulfilling your mission to go to the cross, to go to the grave, come out of that grave, to ascend to heaven, and knowing that you're coming back for us one day very soon. I pray for each person in this room, Lord, no matter what each of us are going through, you know fully well. You know exactly what we're going through. And for that, we're grateful. And you promise to walk us through whatever it is, Lord. You don't tap us on the back and say, good luck, I hope you can make it. No, you walk us through it all to the other side. And I pray for every person this morning that said yes to you. They said yes to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you will wrap your arms around them Oh, God, make yourself known to them in a very personal way. And we thank you, Lord. You're a God who wants to have a relationship with us. That's what it's all about. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. We want to know you. We want to get to know you better this Christmas. So thank you for the good work you're doing, Lord, and we'll continue to do in each one of our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.